0: And for the rest of us, if you can open your Bible to Luke chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verses 67 to 80 in particular, but reflecting on the story of Zechariah and the birth of John the Baptist, and then this great prophecy that Zechariah gives. If you're using the Bible in this row in front of you, um, that will be on page 724, Luke 1, 67 to 80. If Zachariah had one fault, it would be, or it was, that he couldn't believe that the impossible could happen to him. I mean, a, a lot of us believe in the impossible. We believe miracles do sometimes happen, uh, happen almost always to other people, Right. <laughs> Many of us can accept that somewhere long ago or far away, um, someone could kill a giant with a sling, or um, have a baby at 100 years old, or part the Red Sea, or or raise a dead person. But that stuff can't happen to us, right? (laughs) Well, why not? Well, that's how Zachariah felt. He he felt um, that that kind of thing couldn't happen to him, and it was perhaps his one fault. I mean, other than that, Zechariah was an exemplary, or had an exemplary spiritual life. Luke tells us in in verse 6 of Luke 1 that Zechariah was righteous in the sight of God. He observed all the Lord's commands from the Torah, all those decrees blamelessly. Wow, that's quite an accomplishment. Also, Zechariah's prophetic poem that we're going to look at this morning is full of quotes and allusions to the Psalms and Isaiah and other prophecies in the Old Testament. Zechariah obviously knew his his Old Testament inside and out. God's word was in his heart enough that when he prays here, scripture just pours out of him. But Zechariah had one fault, and it was a critical one. It happened when the angel came to him, promising that he and his wife would have a child. Now, Zechariah and his wife had tried their whole life to have a child, but they could never conceive. And now they were old. They were far too old to have a child. But now here comes the angel promising Zechariah the impossible. And Zachariah just can't believe the impossible can happen to him. Can you blame him? Well, the angel, God's messenger, does blame him. The angel Gabriel considers it very serious business that we should fail to believe that God can do the impossible for us. And so as a consequence, Gabriel declares that Zachariah will be unable to speak until the child is born. Imagine nine months of being reminded every day that you didn't believe nine months of being under god's discipline nine months of of thinking it over of pondering it in your heart uh, of who god is and and what god can do and and what god is up to evidently Zechariah took god's discipline during this time to heart and, and grew through this experience Evidently, he, he learned what he needed to learn because when his son John is born and they go on the eighth day to circumcise him, Zachariah's tongue is loosed and he's filled with the Holy Spirit and he bursts out in praise to God. He prophesies in our passage this morning about who his son John will be and how John will prepare the way for the coming one whom we know is Jesus Christ. But here's the thing. That's all in Luke chapter 1, right at the beginning of the story of Jesus. And, and Zechariah comes out with this prophecy. And, and as you read it, it makes you wonder if Zechariah read the rest of Luke's gospel. Because the Christ that Zechariah describes in, in his prophecy sounds very different from the one we actually get in the rest of the gospel. Now, now I realize Zachariah couldn't have actually read Luke's gospel because he was an old man when Jesus was born and Jesus's story doesn't really even get going for another 30 years. But but here's my point. Zechariah prophesies Christ's coming, but the Christ he describes under the inspiration of God's spirit doesn't seem to match up with the one that we actually get, which we're going to be reading about in Luke's gospel. Let me give you three reasons I say this first. Zachariah's Christ is a horn of salvation in the house of David now that might not mean much to us but it meant a lot to Zachariah and his culture you see a horn was a symbol of power those were the days before bulldozers and tractor trailers and locomotives and so not much more uh, there wasn't anything much more powerful for those farm folks back then than an ox and its horns And, of course, David's house means the royal line of David, the family bloodline from which God had promised to raise up a mighty king, a Christ, a Messiah, to rule his people. A horn of salvation in David's house means a mighty, powerful king. Second, what's this king going to do, according to Zechariah? Well, verse 71, he's going to save Zechariah and his people from their enemies and from the hand of all who hate them. Now, who are Zechariah's enemies? Who are those who hate his people? Well, the obvious answer is the empire who is oppressing them, the Roman Empire, right? Zechariah is predicting a mighty Davidic king who will be so powerful so as to defeat the Romans, the most powerful empire in the world. But have you read the story of Jesus in Luke? Jesus isn't interested in taking on the Romans at all. No, Jesus hangs around with poor people and and prostitutes. He teaches people about God. He heals people who are hurting. And then, of course, the Romans crucify him, and he doesn't even resist. Has Zechariah read Luke's gospel? (laughs) And then third, there's Zechariah's prophecy about who Christ is supposed to uh, be helping out. Verse 69, a horn of salvation for us. Who's the us? Us. Well, Zechariah's people, the Jews, of course. Zechariah goes on, verse 71, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Verse 72, mercy to our ancestors, the oath he swore to our father Abraham. Don't miss up in verse 59 that Zechariah speaks this prophecy at his son's circumcision ceremony. That's the Jewish ceremony where Jewish boys are marked apart as, as children of Abraham, as, as members of, of God's chosen people. To be circumcised is to be Jewish. It's to be different from everybody else. And it's for the Jews, the circumcised, that this Christ is coming according to Zechariah's prophecy. But has Zechariah read Luke's gospel? Because what does Christ do right at the beginning of his ministry in Luke chapter 4? jesus goes into the jewish synagogue in nazareth and he basically tells them no prophet has honor in his own town and jesus then compares himself to elijah who among other things went to pagan outsiders and did his miracles for those gentiles and the people in the synagogue got jesus's drift because that jesus was coming not just for them but for other pagan gentiles because what do they do They're so infuriated about the way Jesus puts it across to them that they drag him out to the top of a cliff and they try to push him off. It makes you wonder if Zechariah read the rest of Luke. Because clearly the Christ we get in Luke is not the one Zechariah predicted. Or is he? Because sure, Zechariah didn't live long enough to get to learn about Jesus's ministry, but Luke did. And Luke chose to include Zechariah's prophecy right in the introduction to his book about Christ. Which means Luke must think that Zechariah has something important to tell us about who Jesus is and how we are to understand his story. And so the key, I think, to understanding this prophecy and how to square it with the Christ we actually meet in Luke's gospel is to realize that like Mary's great poem which we looked at last week zachariah's poem here is a set of glasses to put on to help us make better sense of the jesus we read about in luke's gospel zachariah's poem doesn't parrot exactly what we'll read about in the story of jesus but rather it gives us a different slant it uh, gives us a different angle from which to view the story of Jesus, so that we can see some things in the story that we otherwise might miss or misunderstand if we didn't have these glasses on. Does that make sense? Yeah, okay. Uh, So what I'd like to do now is, is to put on Zachariah's lenses together and see what it helps us to see about who Christ is. And to get us started to understand Zachariah's prophecy we have to recognize that Zechariah and his fellow Jews were looking for a new exodus. Last month we looked at the first exodus in the days of Moses, right? Um, at that time, God's people were slaves in Egypt and God came down in great power to, to fight for them against their Egyptian oppressors, to, to lead them out by a pillar of cloud and fire to provide for them miraculously in the desert, to form them into a people at Mount Sinai by making a covenant with them and giving them his law. And then also by coming and dwelling among them in a tabernacle. All that was was the first exodus. It was the defining moment of salvation for God's people. The exodus showed God's merciful and faithful commitment to his people and God's mighty power that God exercised on their behalf. Now in the days of Zechariah, God's people were in exile again, this time under the oppressive regime of the Romans and God's people were longing for a new exodus. An exodus that God had promised them in scriptures like Isaiah 40. When we hear of a voice calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. And so one reason we know that Zechariah is um, prophesying a second exodus is that he uses the same biblical language which was used to describe the first exodus. Words like salvation. And redemption and and rescue and phrases like God visits or, or God comes to his people. Also, we find some of the same biblical images like light in the darkness, verse 79. Remember the pillar of fire that lit up the night for the Israelites. And the image of the desert itself, which according to verse 80 is where John the Baptist will kick off this new exodus. In Zechariah's prophecy, Zechariah is praising God that God is just about to launch a new exodus to once again redeem and set his people free. You could say that Zechariah's prophecy is connecting the dots between the Old Testament, which foretold the, the coming of a new savior to lead God's people in a new redemption, and the story of Jesus, which is the fulfillment of those promises despite appearances. And, and so in his prophecy, Zechariah gives us a new set of glasses, which enables us to see four things about this Christ and, and the new exodus he comes to lead us on. So let's spend the rest of our time looking at these four things. The, the first is who this Christ is who is going to lead this new exodus. Not another Moses. Moses was a prophet who led the first exodus and Jesus was a prophet too, but but that's not his main job description or identity. No, look at verse 89 again. Jesus' main identity is that he is the Christ, a mighty, powerful king from the line of David. That's what Zechariah wants us to see. Now, if you read the rest of Luke's gospel, you meet Jesus, and, and you might miss the fact that he's a king because he doesn't act much like any king we're familiar with, right? But Zechariah's poem gives us a set of glasses to put on and says, look at Jesus again. Jesus is a king, a real king, establishing a real kingdom. So here's the key thing we need to realize. The salvation, the redemption that Jesus brings us under the new Exodus is a salvation under Jesus' reign. It's a salvation found in his kingdom. Are you saved? To be saved is to give your allegiance to a new king. And to learn to live in a new kingdom. Jesus calls it the kingdom of God. And in Luke's story, we'll see that, that Jesus shows us what this kingdom looks like and teaches us how to live in it. Jesus shows us it's a kingdom which welcomes in the poor. Which embraces and forgives sinners which challenges the powerful and the rich while raising up the lowly. That it's a kingdom where the hurting find comfort and the sick find healing and the oppressed find freedom. And Jesus teaches us to to live this way from our hearts toward others one day the new testament tells us jesus kingdom will rule over all and Zechariah's prophecy will come fully true and jesus will reign over everything but right now this kingdom is still being established and jesus is calling willing people to come and live under his new management you could say in this new kingdom jesus is a king the second thing we see about jesus when we put on this set of glasses that Zechariah gives us is that or rather is what King Jesus saves us from as he leads us on this new exodus what he saves us from verse 71 he saves us from our enemies and from all who hate us now if you read the rest of Luke you'd be confused because it seems like Jesus needed someone to save him from his enemies after all Jesus gets crucified by the enemies of God's people but Zechariah says no look again Jesus does save us from our enemies those enemies just aren't who you might think they are what we discover in Luke's gospel is that the enemies Jesus has in mind aren't the Romans now who are they They're they're the spiritual forces of the dark side now there's lots of ways that these forces can manifest themselves but let me mention the four that Luke focuses on the first manifestation of the spiritual forces of the dark side are actually religious people those who want to co-opt God for their own purposes. Who are fervent and orthodox and faithful in their religion. They believe the right things. They, they look right on the outside, but they actually resist God when God moves. Think Pharisees. Think chief priests. Think Sanhedrin. The second way these, these enemies, these forces of the dark side manifest themselves is actual demons spiritual beings who don't answer to God and Jesus in his ministry is always casting out demons right these spirits look for people who are spiritually vulnerable either because uh, these people have been deeply wounded or um, because they have an area in their life that they stubbornly refuse to submit to God and these spirits move into those places to to deepen our darkness to increase our spiritual hardness to trap us in addictions The third way that these um, spiritual forces manifest themselves are are the broader forces of evil and chaos which stand arrayed against God to spoil the goodness of God's creation. And the big example in Luke's Gospel is is the storm on the sea, right? Jesus' disciples are um, caught out on a raging sea, and, and if you read the Bible, the tumultuous sea is often a symbol of evil and chaos, going right back to Genesis chapter 1 and and the disciples are out on this and it's overwhelming them and what does jesus do jesus orders the chaos to be calm and it is just like that the fourth enemy finally that jesus comes to save us from is death itself what does jesus do he raises the dead so these dark spiritual influences of various types in their various manifestations are the true enemies of God and God's people. And Jesus has indeed come, Zachariah tells us, to set us free from each of them. This reminds me of a story I heard um, once told by uh, Thomas Long, who's a, a preaching professor. And at the time that he tells a story he had moved to Atlanta and was looking for a church there. And he decided to join Central Presbyterian Church in Atlanta. Um, it had a great worship. It had a long tradition of ministry to the city. And these were attractive to him. And and part of the new members class that he went through um, was that the several leaders of the church invited all the prospective new members um, to have dinner together. And one of the pastors was uh, had them go around the table and share why they were each joining the church. And um, One person loved uh, the the music program and wanted to join the choir, and another had two teenagers, and they were attracted because the church had a great youth group, and um, another um, hadn't liked the pastor of their previous church, but they liked the pastor of this church, so they were very happy to be there, and so on on it went around the table. Well, the last guy to share was a guy named Marshall. He was at the end of the table, and uh, Marshall didn't look like the others. He had a ponytail and earrings and some studded clothing, and um, rather than give a short answer, Marshall started telling his story. And um, he told how he had been living on the streets, he had been addicted to crack for for years, and and finally, in desperation, he had stumbled into an outreach center that the church ran and, and had begged for help. And the director of the center was out of money and said it would probably be a month before he could get Marshall into a treatment program, But he said, if you stick with us till then, we'll stick by you. And uh, they also talked uh, about Jesus. And and by the time they were done, they were kneeling on the floor together, begging Jesus to change Marshall's life. And Jesus did. And three years later, Marshall was sitting in that membership class telling his story, having been sober for those three years. And Marshall concluded, I want to join this church because God saved me in this church. And everyone else in the group felt kind of sheepish. You know, they were there for the parking. Marshall was there for the salvation. Um, Well, six weeks later, right after Christmas, uh, Long happened to notice in the church newsletter that Marshall was now an inmate in the DeKalb County Jail. And um, Long went to visit him, and he was able to talk to him through plate class. And he said, "How how are you doing, Marshall? Um, and Marshall said, well, by the grace of God, I'm doing okay. And um, Long said, what, what happened? And, and Marshall replied, well, I was in the outreach center counseling people like myself and telling them they could do right. And then I realized I wasn't doing right. You see, I had an old warrant that I knew would never catch up with me. But God convicted me, and I knew I had to turn myself in. But I'll be out by Easter, he said, and I can't wait to worship our risen Lord at Central Press. And in the meantime, he said, I've got a little outreach center going here and on here in my cell. Um, a lot of people here can't read or write, and so I write letters to their spouses, to their sweethearts, telling them that, that they love them and that they'll see them soon. And I have a prayer meeting for the guards and for the other inmates. And Long is just blown away as he hears Marshall's attitude here. And he concludes when he tells this story, here here I was looking at a man in an orange jumpsuit, set free by Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. You see, the Romans weren't the real enemies. Neither are the liberals or the conservatives or the Muslims Rather, the enemies are the kind of forces which kept Marshall bound for years in addiction and a dead-end life of destruction. And the good news that Zechariah wants us to hear is that Jesus is a powerful king who came to break the back of all such enemies. Just like God did for the Egyptians in the first exodus, so that God could set his people free. Third, Zechariah's glasses show us what we are saved for. Saved from enemies, but what are we saved for? Verse 74, to enable us to serve God without fear in holiness and righteousness all our days. In the first exodus, God's people, um, God saved his people from, from the fear of Egypt. The Egyptian pharaoh had terrorized them, had murdered their babies had oppressed them terribly but god had set them free from the terror of serving serving pharaoh so that they could serve god a new king whose rule is good and benevolent after god set them free god provided for them in the desert and and god led them into the promised land and god gave them a law code to follow the 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 torah which was just, and was fair, and was good, and enabled them to set up a society based on justice and goodness, whose example still affects the legal systems around the world today. And now Zacharias says, Jesus is coming as king to found a new kingdom, to to set us free again from, from fear, from the kinds of enemies that Marshall found freedom from. And in this new kingdom, we're set free to live a life of of wholeness and of goodness and of beauty. And and what does this life look like? Well, our king models it for us and teaches us how to live it. We see Jesus caring for those in need, comforting the afflicted, feeding the hungry, healing the diseased, loving his enemies, uh, forgiving his enemies and, and loving the unlovely, standing up to the oppressive. And living with integrity. And Jesus teaches his followers to live this way too. Because that's what life in his kingdom looks like. It's based on loving our neighbors and forgiving our enemies. It's based on trusting our good heavenly father for what we need. And so we're freed up to be generous and to care for others in need. Because you see, this is how human beings were created to live, not selfishly, not grasping for ourselves, holding on to, to control, but open-handedly to, to bless and to serve others. And uh, that's how God is teaching us as CBC to live, right? And so in verse 78, Zechariah describes Jesus as being like the rising sun coming up to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness to guide our feet in the path of peace. To follow Jesus's teaching and example is is to live the life Jesus leads us into. It's to see, it's to step out of darkness and to view things clearly, it's to discover what it means to be fully human. And to live this way is to walk in the path of peace. We looked at peace last week, right? And, and Greg reminded us last week that, that in the Bible, peace, the Jewish word shalom, is much more than the absence of conflict. Rather, shalom, peace, has to do with, with health and with wholeness and with human flourishing. Jesus is a king who comes to, to put a broken world back together again. To teach communities of people like us how to really live and to live well together. I like the way C.S. Lewis pictures this in his, his Narnia classic, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. He, he pictures this coming of God's kingdom of, of peace, of salvation, like winter ending and, and the sprinter, uh, spring thaw coming. The creation is waking up. The harsh bitterness and, and deadness of winter's bite is ending. And everything is blooming. The world is is coming alive with life and with color. A a warm, fresh breeze is blowing. The blossoms are fragrant. The animals are alive and, and scampering. Everything feels new and alive. That's biblical peace. That's shalom. And that is what the king has come to save us for. For that kind of kingdom. For that kind of life together. Fourth, finally, Zechariah shows us why Jesus came to save us. Verse 72, to show mercy on our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham. See, if there's one thing about God, it's, God, it's that God is trustworthy. God is, is good for his word. God keeps his promises. And what oath had God sworn to Abraham. Well, that Abraham would become the father of a great nation. That God would bless Abraham and his descendants, and that through them, all nations would be blessed. But in Zechariah's day, God's people were not blessed. They were oppressed. And so godly people like Zechariah had been crying out, God, why? Why? Why do you stand far off while the Romans oppress us? Your people are in exile because of our sins. Granted, we have not been faithful to you, but you are faithful. And your grace is greater than all of our sins. And you promised, Lord, you promised Abraham that he'd be a great nation, a nation blessed, in order that we could bless others. And God, because of his own faithful love, heard the prayer of his people. God didn't give up on his people. He came and he saved them. Because God is faithful. God keeps his commitments of love. In verse 78, God is also tenderly merciful. God looks on his people with pity. And so God relents and forgives and welcomes us back to him. That's why according to verse 77, John the Baptist who pray- prepares the way for Jesus gives us the knowledge of his coming salvation by offering us the forgiveness of our sins. God in his mercy offers through Jesus to forgive all of our sins so that we can enter his kingdom and live under his reign and experience his salvation, his new exodus. God will do it because God is faithful to the The people that God has promised to love. And the good news for us is that God promised Abraham that the blessing given to Abraham would be for all nations. That's why Jesus opens up his his new exodus, his kingdom, not only for the historic Jewish people, but for anyone who wants to follow Jesus and let Jesus be their king. So are you part of the new exodus? Are you being set free um, from your captivity? Have you given your allegiance to to Jesus as your king, as your kingdom? As we read the story of Luke, Luke, we learn that the way that John the Baptist and then Jesus gives us to begin this new exodus is to be baptized. Just as in the first exodus, the Israelites went through the water and came out a new people. So John the Baptist, Jesus, invite anyone willing to come on the new exodus, to go through the water, and to begin a new life in a new kingdom as part of God's salvation. If you'd like to know more about that, I'd be happy to talk to you about that. And if you'd like prayer this morning, Terrence and maybe a few other people with their uh, blue ribbons will be in the lounge um, and happy to pray for you about that or anything else you'd like prayer for.